Hello, this is Dr. Nancy O'Reilly, and you're listening to Conversations with Smart, Amazing Women. Each week, we bring you a woman who can help you with your with life lessons about a very important part of your life, such as, hey, your relationships, your business. How about being just self-fulfilled or your self-esteem? Now, if you've listened to these conversations, you know I've been doing these conversations and interviews with these amazing leading women since 2007. Wow. I chose 19 of the best experts to co-author my book, Leading Women, 20 Influential Women Share Their Secrets to Leadership, Business, and Life, which is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and area bookstores. Now, if you haven't bought yours yet, or if you know a woman who needs to push to accept her leadership role, this book could change her life. This week, I'm pleased to introduce you to another outstanding woman who is, who is an amazing role model for survival and how to repurpose your life. Her name is Nancy Michaels. I've, I interviewed Nancy in 2010, shortly after she began her current, current journey to help others focus on their health, well-being, and both their personal and professional lives. Today, she inspires health organizations and other businesses through her own experience of nearly dying at a high point in her life. She fought back and we learned to speak and to walk and to become an amazing author and inspiring speaker she is today. I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Nancy Michaels back to Conversations with Smart, Amazing Women. Well, good morning, Nancy. <laughs> I'll just start out by saying there's not really any other Nancys in the world that I don't like. I think that's because <laughs> I think Nancy is such a it's such a special name. I was named after my grandmother Nancy, Nancy Shirk. So that name I'm very proud of. When I do meet other Nancys, I'm always watch, watching to see whether I'm going to like this one or not. So, Gosh, that's a really interesting point. I have never thought about that, but I think I feel the same way. <laughs> You've never you've never met a Nancy you didn't like to. Yeah, I've never met a Nancy I didn't like. Well, it's a, it's a very traditional name, you know, like Mary or Susie. So there really aren't that many women named Nancy. So how did you get your name? We might as well get that one out of the way. <laughs> oh gosh, I, this is a, a long story. I think my father had picked it out before I was even born, and um, unfortunately, he made the mistake of commenting about some secretary at his office who was adorable, who was named Nancy. So I'm actually shocked that I got named Nancy. <laughs> Since then, my mother has gotten over it. Okay, well, I was going to say, that must, have been a, that must be a different kind of story that maybe we need to share this morning. So anyway. <laughs> well, well it's good to know. see you. I'd rather not talk about it. But. Yeah, well, we, we met, uh, we were just reflecting on the, on the phone just a few, few minutes ago that we met in, uh, uh, I guess that was 2011 at Canyon Ranch at, a, at another event, and then later we did an interview. So, and as you said, lots of things have happened since then. So, let's let's just start out with you. All this this is all actually it's all about you. It's not, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with you about your story and what's going on in your life. But sharing your personal story is so very important for other women. Uh, especially your story it's very profound uh you know you've 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 definitely had more lessons learned than most in your short lifetime so uh why don't we start with you talking about how you became the person you are today it's actually it's funny because um i was saying to a friend yesterday who was staying with me that you know i thought my biggest life crisis really came at around 30 when i was trying to uh get pregnant and I was able to get pregnant 
three times, but she had very early um, miscarriages. And, you know, at that time I was just in a complete funk, wanting to be a mother and start a family and feeling like for the first time ever in my life it was something that I didn't have control over or couldn't influence or couldn't do something about to fix. And, you know, I I think one of my lowest moments when I pulled out the Boston Globe from Sunday, it was a Monday morning, and I almost put the whole thing in the trash, and I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I had to start getting more involved in the community that I was living in, and which was really a perfect place to, to move to if you want to have a family, which we had done earlier, and it just didn't happen. So as I pulled out this Northwest Weekly section of the Boston Globe, I saw a woman on the front page, an um, older woman, and she was holding three beautiful Chinese baby girls. And it was about a doctor who was in the town that I live in, Concord, who had retired and was going to China to help couples and individuals adopt baby girls because of the one-child policy that China had. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is just the perfect solution. I want to be a mother, and there is this need to adopt in that country in particular at that time. And I called the adoption agency that she worked out of, and I called her home, and I spoke to her partner, and and then I called my husband at the time and said, guess what? I have great news. We're going to have a baby, and we're going to go to China to do it. <laughs> the solution to that problem. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> well, to, honestly, to his credit, we are, have since uh, gotten divorced, but he was absolutely on board. It was nine months and ten days from the time I saw that newspaper article at the time that we met my daughter, Chloe, Anyang Goldstein. So, um, and, and we actually did um, put our application in at the six-month point to go back to adopt her sister, Sophie. And in the interim, I found myself pregnant with my son and wasn't quite sure how you know that was going to go. But as it turned out, I had three children under the age of four and three years. So the motto of that story always is be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Because it was sort of an overnight success once I could pivot, you know, and think about other alternatives to a situation. And I think that has been almost a metaphor for a lot of my life. But, and I don't say that, you know, I, when I said in the beginning, that was like the biggest crisis I had. I don't mean to undermine that in any way, because when you're going through something like that, it really is huge. I mean, little did I know that, honestly, that was going to be sort of the least of my worries 10 years later. But, I mean, I think through a lot of things that people can view as crises or really difficult times can come some of the best things in your life if you can stay open to them. So I'm grateful now, and they're all much older, and I survived the early years, and <laughs> it's all yeah. good. All right. Well, congratulations with the four children, and, and uh, yes, you did fulfill your purpose there. There's no doubt about it, so congratulations. So you, yeah. have, you have a daughter that you adopted from China, and then you have three biological children? No, I have, I have two daughters who are adopted from China, and I have one okay. biological son in between. Okay, so yeah, three all together. So you did go ahead and adopt uh, his, her sister? I did. I, you know, I always wanted Chloe, my oldest, to feel like that was a first choice. Do you know what I mean? Not in that just because we were able to have a child, my intention really was for to go back. And, and I wanted her to have a sister, too. You can live vicariously through your children. I didn't have any sisters. I had three brothers. Yeah. Okay. And thought, okay. no, I really wanted to have a sister. Um, 
and I'm, you know, obviously so glad. Okay, so you have two two adopted daughters and then two biological children. No, just one biological child in between, my son. Okay, so I thought you said you said you had four children. No, three under the age of four. Oh, okay. Thank you. Now I'm okay. Yes. <laughs> my, my math was not was was not coming out correctly. So not congratulations. I actually traveled to China and uh, was there when this was all going on. The one child, the, I mean, they wanted to get to zero population. They felt they were overpopulated, and uh, especially little girls were being adopted out. I don't think they're doing that now at all. Now I think that's no. In fact, they've got actually they've had a you know a, the boomerang effect of that. And it's not been good. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's no longer. I, you may still be able to adopt, but I, I don't think it's in the numbers that it was. Back yeah. in 1995 and 99 when yeah. I went. Very difficult. Okay, well, that was just part of the amazing story, but then your children grew and your your personal story continues, and I, I kind of jumped in there. Yeah, well, I mean, it sort of fast forward 10 years later, um, or 11 years later, I was 41, and my marriage was on the rocks, and we had separated in 2004. And my children at the time were six, seven, and nine, and which was really tough, obviously, to have kids those listen any age, I guess, that you see your parents get divorced is not a good time. So but I was becoming increasingly sick during that, it was an eight-month period between when we got separated and when I actually ended up in my local ER and then transferred to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston for organ failure. And what happened in my case, which I was unaware of, is that I had a virus that I had caught through, I believe, a surgical procedure I had had a month earlier. And it got into my bloodstream and it attacked my organ. So I was in complete liver failure. I was days away from dying when I got to Beth Israel and was immediately put on a donor list for a liver. My kidneys improved, but my liver did not. And... I just remember it almost being a surreal time, Nancy, I think is the only way that I could put this because yeah. I, you know, I have been an organ donor myself since the time I got my license, I signed up to be one. And it's certainly something I was aware of, but I was literally in a state of shock when my doctor told me that I would need to have a new liver and that they were looking for one on my behalf and were hopeful that they could find one. I mean, there was certainly no guarantee given and... I just was, I, I just could not get my head wrapped around it. And within a few days of actually being in the hospital, I was so septic that I was in an induced coma that I remained in, uh, actually through the liver transplant. And that alone was a sort of harrowing experience because I didn't know this at the time, but I did later when I woke up uh, two months after I was in a coma that I had died twice during the surgery. The second time was more than two minutes. So they said that technically I would not be the same cognitively. I'd probably need long-term help, um, would not be able to live an independent life. I mean, they were really preparing my parents for the worst. And I also underwent emergency brain surgery, too, while I was in a coma. Um, One of the things that they had to do prior to the surgery was to drill a hole in my head to alleviate the cranial pressure that was building up. And somehow that became infected, and I had an abscess in my brain that they found through you know, a routine CAT scan while I was lying comatose in my hospital room. And 
so I, you know, I went through a tremendous amount of physical trauma and certainly mental when I woke up and I found out everything that was going on. And I think the hardest part and the reason I remember so much about my hospital experience is because when I woke up, I was trached. So I couldn't speak for an additional month. That I was awake and aware and so completely frustrated at not being able to ask questions, talk to people, tell people what I felt, what I needed, what I wanted. It was just so incredibly frustrating. And, you know, from there, I, I really had to relearn everything. You know, I mean, I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't stand. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't get dressed. So I went to Spalding Rehab for six weeks. And I was literally just still unbelievably sick. And I'll, I will say that going to a rehabilitation facility when you're that ill is no fun. Um, it's no fun if you're, you know, just dealing with a, you know, you know an issue that you need PT and OT for. But, yeah. you know, on top of that, I was just so physically ill that um, it was really one of the most challenging phases of this whole process. And then I... I ended up getting readmitted back to the transplant unit, which I had never even been on at Beth Israel, um, for a failure to thrive diagnosis, which is typically what they give to end-of-life people or premature babies who just aren't getting better. And I was there for another six weeks, and then I was finally discharged. So I was, you know, hospitalized for a total of six months, and then was discharged and moved in with my family, my parents, who lived 50 miles away from my town that I, my children were at, my friends and my wife I had had for, you know, 20 years. Uh-huh. And was grateful that they could take me in. But it was, yeah, it was a challenging time, too. And I ended up being, continuing to be ill with various complications, you know, in my case from high potassium to rejection episodes to... I had aspergillum, which is kind of a yeast or mold in my lungs. To it just went on and on. I felt like it was an un, like a, a health tsunami. Where yeah. I just could not wow. get up and wow. without another tidal wave coming at me. And I ended up being readmitted to the hospital ten more times within the next six months, from anywhere from two to eleven nights. And then finally, you know, that was you know a, a solid year of really being in and out, you know, six months in and then six months in and out of the hospital. And during this time, because I was separated, I lost custody of my children. Um, Obviously, I wasn't able to make decisions or be, you know, contributor when I was in a coma. And and really had to fight for them, you know, when I was able to, when I was able to, and, and go through this whole divorce process, too, which was just adding insult to injury, quite frankly, because it's, it's horrible enough to be sick, but when you're really, and, you know, as wonderful as my family was, it sort of wasn't the same as having the equivalent of my life partner with me. And he wasn't there. And, you know, I think still to this day have some trauma, you know, due to that whole experience, especially my youngest daughter, who was literally sure. petrified to see me. I mean, I had feeding tube coming out of my nose. They finally insisted sure. that that be put yeah. into my stomach and, well, they were always questioning whether you would survive or not as well. They were questioning Absolutely. That. Yeah, and it's going to be a horrible feeling to feel like as a child, your mother, who is usually the person who is the strongest force in your life, is that ill. Um, and it's just, you know, I thank God every day because I really feel like it. You know, I am such 
a living miracle in many ways. And I'm grateful that I survived the storm and came out the other side. And it's been 11 years now. I certainly, it's so funny. I, I have to laugh about this because if I didn't, I'd lose my mind. But last May, I was like limping. And at first, I thought I had pulled a muscle in my leg or hip. And I finally ended up getting so worse that I realized this is not a muscle. This is a bone issue. And I went to my doctor and found out that I had to have hip replacement. Um, And part of that was because I had two rejection episodes while I, early on, one was right away when I was in a coma, the other was six months after I had received my organ transplant. And they were thankfully able to reverse it through steroids, but part of the side effect of that that can come later and down the road is a vascular necrosis. So I have that in both of my hips. Fortunately, only one was extremely painful. The other I actually haven't knocked on wood, haven't had any kind of pain in. And I just, I'm three weeks out today. It's my three-week anniversary from having had the hip replacement. All of this is so (laughs) fresh in my mind. It's like, you know, reliving what it was like to be hospitalized again, too. So it's interesting timing that we're speaking now about this. You no doubt have a purpose to be here in this world because by by what by your description and by your history, your medical history, uh, there are very very so many reasons that you should not be here and still are. So there are many gifts that you're here to share with the, the world. Still, there's no doubt about it. So, wow, you've I mean, how how are you feeling today? How are you doing today? I, I'm I'm feeling okay. I'm frustrated that I can't drive. You know, I'm, yeah. and it, and like I said, you know, it's, I think it's it's been sort of any kind of down moment I've had. It's be I think really think it's sort of like reliving history. It was just yeah. um, the yeah. whole hospital experience and right. being in there and have being in more pain than I anticipated, right. <laughs> not being bouncing back as quickly, and all yeah. of those things is just sort of a reminder of what I went through, yeah. which is no well. fun. Feeling help, helpless and at the mercy of those that uh, make decisions, and and I know I'm, I've been reading your uh, website and looking it over. You know, I mean, it's all uh, child av- I mean, patient advocacy is such an important issue for you, and I can surely understand that. Uh, I have had just very few hospitalizations, but each one I've ever had, uh, I have actually the one time I was hospitalized it was for. Uh, I had uh, a bout of uh, colitis, and I don't have that anymore. I took care of that, but uh, I was in the hospital and finally got so frustrated with these people. I unhooked. I just got up and left. I I walked out. I got out. I just got out and left. I actually left with the port still for the IV still in my arm. I was so I was so angry and so upset with these people, the way that I was treated, that I literally just got up and walked out. And nobody, nobody stopped me. Nobody took the port out of my arm. And, you know, it was interesting to me that to this day, uh, I, I definitely have a bad taste in my mouth when it comes to being in, in healthcare per se, because there does seem to be such a lack of empathy when it's supposed to be one of the caring professions. And you're, you're, most, well, you're the most vulnerable you'll ever be in your entire life in those situations and probably probably treated the poorest. <laughs> you are absolutely right. And in all honesty, my most recent experience, I used to think that, gosh, you know, I really would love to speak to critical care nurses and doctors. And, and I still would. And I, um, 
am doing some of that that's scheduled coming up uh, this year. But I really felt like, wow, they needed the most. Cause I, and I had the most vivid memories there because I think because I couldn't speak, but I was fully aware. And thankfully, you know, cognitively, none of what they thought was going to happen did. But I think that I have so many distinct memories of that that I felt like that was really where I could make the biggest difference. And in all honesty, after being in hospital recently, I think, oh, my gosh, no. It's, yeah. it's everywhere. And it's, um, well, my, my, guess, my guess is is that when you're around people in pain and you're, you're around people that do struggle psychologically and, and, and physically and emotionally and spiritually, which is often all three are, are pounding away when this is going on, is that I think people start to desensitize. They start to close down the, because they can't, they can't work. Um, I, now, I, I was the director of an EAP, Employee Assistance Program, and, and we had, um, you know, one of the things that we did, we had a crisis intervention team, and, and that if something happened within the hospital, like example, uh, the first responders, the, the EMT people, if, if they ever had a situation with a child, a death of a child, we would try to bring them in to discuss the, you know, the, the impact, and they wouldn't come, or if they come, they wouldn't talk. So we, we, we knew pretty pretty well firsthand that, that a lot of these uh, first responders, these EMT, you know, the people that are at, during at the most traumatic, most difficult medical s- settings basically believe that if they let their guard down, if they lost that uh, kind of that uh, almost that macho kind of uh, approach to, you know, I can do this, this is no, this is, I can do this, this is no big deal, I can do this kind of work that they really basically just, I mean, there was a lot of post-traumatic stress, but it was all covered up. It was extremely covered up, and it would come out in other ways, drug and alcohol, all the above. So, I mean, it was it was a tough population to work with. And I'm not saying everyone, but I'm just saying a lot of first responders really do have a difficult time. But this is their life work. This is what they've chosen to do. But yet this is the one thing that can also be very much destructive to them because of the way well, that yeah, and you bring up a really good point, and there is something called, you know, fatigue that happens, and it happens, you know, I mean, machines going off constantly, and I, you know, again, I was reminded of that when I was there again, and it is, they, it is easy to see how you can tune something out that you hear constantly that is just sort of part of it, you know, it's like any job or profession, we sort of go in, we do our routine, we get our stuff done, and and I think, unfortunately, in these professions, there's a whole other level of being, you know, mindful of where you are, you know, who your client or patient is. And I think that, you know, I think the healthcare industry as a whole has gone way off in terms of not looking at patients as clients and not looking at them really as individuals and human beings who, you know, have very different perspectives perspectives on how they are viewing their situation and, and, you know, and listen, it's not, it, I, I, I give credit to anybody in the healthcare profession. I've always said this, that nobody goes into it wanting to do harm. I mean, but I think that there are so many other things now that they have to get up to speed on, like computer systems and, and you know, the workload is bigger. Uh, there's a shortage of nurses yeah. right now. Yeah. That there, there are so many things that are pulling them away from what they originally intended yeah. when they went into this that, and, you know, it's no fun dealing with sick people. I mean, I am not a good patient anymore. I, and I really noticed myself being 
so completely different from when from where I was 11 years ago. Well, it was good reason. I mean, you yeah, every, absolutely. Every Experience, time, wisdom, <laughs> age <laughs> makes you, um, you know, much more aware of. And I, you know, I was definitely calling people on. You know, this was supposed to happen at this time. It's now two and a half hours later. Did you make that call? Did you page yeah. that? Did you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's yeah. And I think you know the 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 lack of empathy is definitely there. And I, you know, and then I can give you some amazing examples of what people did for me that I will never forget and I'm eternally grateful for. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I don't have as many of those as I do yeah. the uh-huh. incidences that really could so easily have been corrected. Yeah. You know, I think with some awareness and some, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, standardization of protocol or approach can be actually instituted because it's so individual. But I would think that, like any other industry, there are best practices, and I think that the healthcare needs the system needs to be held accountable to those as well. Yeah. So, so what is it, Nancy? You're trying to accomplish with healthcare change and with healthcare ab- with patient advocacy. What is your what are your goals and objectives at this point? I feel as though, you know, my message, fortunately, is appropriate for any audience um, in that, you know, my, my primary keynote is lessons learned from dying. And because I do conduct my life in a completely different way than I did and had been up until, you know, I was 41. And, you know, I'm grateful for that now. I wouldn't want to relive this, but I do appreciate that, you know, things have um, changed and I've taken a different, you know, approach to my life than I have before. And, you know, the other thing, too, I didn't mention, too, about my son, my biological child, is that he has autism. And that has proven to be a whole other learning life experience that, you know, I probably wouldn't have signed up for. But I certainly, you know, I've learned so much. And I think that there are so many, you know, amazing challenges that people go through. And I've had the opportunity to meet many of them through not only my own health experience, but through my son and other situations that I think hopefully that there's a message there for people who are going through, you know, crisis or know of somebody who is. And, yeah. and you know, we're, none of us are exempt, you know, no matter what we have in life. We really never know what someone's going through. And I think from the outside looking in, my life was really perfect prior to being separated and certainly being ill. But underneath that really was a house of cards, and I think that, you know, it's easy to make those assessments or judgments. And what I try to do is really share with people based on my own experience of being ill and healthy and dealing with life's challenges that there, there is a way to, to look at these things and turn something that is very negative, you know, as an experience into something positive yeah. and how to move on. And, and, you know, I wish too, part of me too is I guess I wish that I had had some of the insight, you know, or could hear from someone who had gone through some of these similar things to what I was going through and know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel or yeah. to keep the faith. And, you know, whether or not I would have listened to all of that at the time, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, there were certain things that, that were helpful to me. And, and I didn't really appreciate them when they were mentioned at first. I remember being very, you know, very close to suicidal and telling my father how depressed I was. And and instead of getting what it was I was wanting and hoping that he would be providing a very sympathetic 
ear. He said, you know, Nancy, you, your only job right now is to get better. Because if you can't get better, you can't have any of these things that you're talking about wanting back in your life. And I was furious. I mean, I was not, I was so angry at him for saying that. I thought, you know, he, you know, my father, thankfully, had not been very ill in most of his life, although he was a, he had a child diabetic and honestly was another miracle. I mean, my own doctors couldn't believe how healthy he was. He'd not gone through a lot in his life in terms of any kind of physical ailments. And I, I just was very angry. I was really angry at the time. And I really started to think about a day and a half into this, maybe even two or three, that, okay, well, what if that is my only job, let's assume that's true, and it, right now it was, what, what are some of the things that I can be grateful for? And it was baby steps. It was, you know, I, I'm grateful that I can lie on this couch and no one needs anything from me. I don't have to deliver anything to anybody. And, you know, I'm grateful that my mother is here and that she's able to bring me my medicine that I couldn't physically get up and walk over to get myself. Uh-huh. And it was it was really, really tiny steps. But over time, I do think being aware of, you know, what what is going on that's good in your life, in, despite all that's going on that, that might not be, is a really good way to get out of your own head. And, and really just, I think, the, you know, the, the practice of gratitude just helps to reinforce more of that. And that's a good thing. And, and it's not easy to, to start. It's not easy, easy to get to when you are feeling that low. So when you're out speaking, though, are you speaking primarily to health care providers or are you speaking to individuals as well? I, I guess I'm, I'm not clear on, I mean, I understand the advocacy part for sure. And, but again, your, your life experience and the experiences that you've had, what is, what is it the legacy that you're trying to or you're attempting to leave or you want to leave when when Nancy Michaels no longer is, is here? I love speaking to healthcare professionals because I am again I'm very grateful for them as well and despite things not being perfect I think that they you know their intentions are very good and I think that they want to do better and and I you know if I could change somebody's perspective in terms of how they approach patients or how they deal with them or the small, really small acts of kindness that have made, I know for me, a huge difference. And I think that's true across professions too, which is why, I mean, I hope that, um, you know, I have some impact in the healthcare arena in changing things. Um, I get a little overwhelmed sometimes because I think it's such a big mountain to climb. Yeah. But again, you know, if I help, if I help one person who is delivering healthcare and makes a difference, that won't help many people. Yeah, and absolutely. and I, you know, I think that, um, you know, that's a very realistic goal. I think that that can happen, and I think that can happen though. True, it, it can be true in any profession that there is a way of approaching things and doing them with a little bit more compassion and empathy, or just you know, paying attention to some of those smaller details that make such a big difference to people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, your story alone is is one of uh, thriving and being not just a survivor, but thriving and, and helping others to move forward in their lives, especially healthcare providers. Because I think that, the, you know, anyone that usually goes into the health provi- healthcare provider profession truly started out as being very passionate and very caring and really wanted to make a difference in the world. So, I mean, 
we need these people. We need them tremendously. I mean, we can't, uh, I mean, heaven forbid if, if all the health care providers decide to take a walk today, we'd all be in serious trouble. There's no doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. I don't think anybody enters this prof- these professions with, n- with nothing but the best of intentions and wanting to do good. Yeah, well, that's uh, there's no doubt about it. Well, your your message and the message that you continue to reach out to others is is extremely profound and so very, very important. So... How how do how do people reach you and what do they do to have you come and speak or what, where would you like them to go to find more out about you? Yeah, well, my website is my name. It's Nancy Michaels, just the way it okay. sounds. N a n c y and M i c h a e l s. I also too. I don't know if anybody is interested in this, but one of the things that I do talk about too is sort of uh, the things that I wish I had done prior to being ill that I didn't think about because I was really healthy. I had never been sick before. (laughs) I was 41. And, you know, I didn't have things like long-term disability or a great life insurance policy. And I know those are things that you don't tend to think about when you're young. But, you know, I think those kinds of things, I don't represent any insurance company, but I do think that, you know, when you're buying that, you're buying peace of mind. And there's a lot to be said for that. And hopefully, you know, hopefully you'll never have to use it. You know, wouldn't that be great, even though you invested the money in it? But um, I think it would have um, been a huge help for me. And there are things now that I'm unqualified for, obviously, um, because it's pre-existing conditions. So I would love to share that with anybody who's interested as well. Absolutely. Yeah, planning ahead is important for all of us. But like you said, when you're you're thriving and you're healthy and everything's going your way, you just don't think that way. Yeah, tomorrow. You can do it tomorrow. tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> we're not we're not promised tomorrow though we're not promised tomorrow so yeah. we're not and you know and that's why that is part of my message too is that you know I think one of the things I did that I was so grateful for is when I was ill and starting to think about my following upcoming year I wrote a list of 11 things I wanted to do and I did every single one of them Very good. and I thought you know that's my exercise in the new year usually is to think of oh, okay what are the five things I want to do and yeah. And they're all really not, you know, I, everybody has told this, but it's so true. It's like at the end of your life, you're not looking back saying, I wish I had worked another day. I wish I had. It's all about the memories that you're making, you know, yeah. with the people you care about and love. And those are the kinds of goals I've set now. They're not um, not as career-focused or driven. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a new year and it's a new day and, and yesterday's gone and and. All we have is today. Tomorrow, as we said, we're not promised. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what what do you really want in your life? And, yeah, like that, you know, I wish I worked another day. That's perfect. No, I don't, I don't wish that for sure. But no one laugh, does. Yeah, laughter, no one really does. <laughs> yeah, laughter and loving and having joy is a very, very important thing for all of us, myself, very much included. But, uh, well, Nancy, I wish you all the best in everything that you're doing in it. And a speedy recovery so that you're out dancing again soon and uh, driving so. <laughs> and dancing and all the things that you choose to do in your life. And and uh, I only wish you great success. Oh, thank you so much, Nancy, and right back at you. <laughs>